Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Today, we sit down with Griff Green to hear his very special story from the DAO to the White Hat Group to Giveth. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about something called the DAO. Um, But the DAO sometimes gets confused with the concept of a DAO. So, Frederick, maybe we can start by defining what a DAO is. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And the idea is you organize people around like or with an Ethereum smart contract uh, or organize people or assets or what what have you in a com- completely like autonomous fashion. So you don't have a CEO that dictates everything and everything is a little bit more fluid. And uh, there's a very specific time in Ethereum's history when DAOs were talked about a lot. And there was a specific DAO that was started called The DAO. And uh, as we'll hear in the interview, there's a reason behind that name. But it's stuck as the DAO, and people always talk about the DAO as a thing. And this is one specific DAO that was started, and the goal was to raise a bunch of money and then distribute that money to projects, like let people vote, who in like let investors vote how this money is distributed, and then uh, the idea was to generate revenue off of these projects that got funded and pay back the the token holders. But as we know, history had a different path planned for this DAO, for the DAO. Right. So it got hacked. It was a really big thing. A lot of people had a lot of money in this, and eventually it finished in a hard fork. And this is a big part of Ethereum's history. It, it's a, it was a large event. And this has definitely colored a lot of the decision making and thinking around the space since then. And so I think anyone who enters the space will definitely hear about this. And this, this episode, we actually get a chance to speak to someone who was there right in the front row, kind of seeing all of this unfold. Um, and so this is why this is kind of an exciting episode to share. So we're sitting down in this episode with Griff Green, who uh, I think it merits uh, painting a little bit of wider picture of him. He gets to introduce himself in this episode, but he's a very humble guy. Um, super nice guy, but he's a big like player in the Ethereum community. Everyone loves him. Uh, if you go to a conference, like there's uh, Griff hugs going around all, all over the place, uh, and he's just a, a really great guy. And he uh, has this persona in the community, and and I think uh, like we like you said, he was actually involved in coding on the DAO and uh, other projects since and uh, really has this sort of first like first row very personal experience to share with this which is why i think it's a very unique um, story to hear this was actually recorded um, right after edcon in toronto at the beginning of may Um, we didn't get a chance to air this until now but we've been sitting on this episode and we've been really excited to share it because i know 
Frederick, you and I sitting there hearing this story, we were kind of on the edge of our seats. Um, and I really hope you guys like it. Here it goes. We have a very special episode with uh, a guest, Griff Green. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Welcome. So we'll uh, maybe start digging in a little bit uh, of your history and, and, and you as a person because you have fascinating history. You've been in this space for a long time. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, let's see. I was a classic. Cl- I'm actually, I have a master. I have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and uh, kind of was doing the normal like you know corporate thing for a little bit and then just couldn't handle it and became a crazy hippie and uh, I was traveling around I've been nomadic for about seven years and uh, I'm a huge burner I love Burning Man that's like a yearly ritual that uh, keeps me going I actually run Camp Decentral and so we have a lot of uh, uh cryptocurrency and decentralists that come in like it's not all crypto it's like seasteading and any of those things so we try to uh, bring that to the playa and give uh, a lot of people that exposure and uh, I guess I ended up getting into crypto as a lot of people did in 2013 when the price went through the roof I had already invested into some because I'm just crazy okay like I was literally living off of physical gold and silver uh, that I like bought off, off of my corporate uh, sellout. So uh, I just was uh, selling that, you know, as I was traveling through some people and you know, crypto seemed to like a lot easier to handle than, than gold and silver. So I uh, was blown away when it went through the roof when Bitcoin went to a thousand and Litecoin went from $2.50 to 40 bucks. And I was just like, what is this? And the more I read, the more obsessed I got to the point where I was just spending all my time in it. And I just decided like, I'm out of here. I went to Ecuador and wanted to become a Bitcoin evangelist like Andreas Antonopoulos and was like pushing really hard there. And then, unfortunately, uh, Ecuador decided to make digital currencies illegal. So that whole idea kind of went out the window of being like a small fish in a smaller pond, you know. So I uh, was luckily I was getting a master's degree in digital currencies with the University of Nicosia. And I started working with Slocket. And then, of course, Slocket became a really important piece of Ethereum history, I guess, with the DAO. And uh, when the DAO got, I was community manager for that for Slocket and the DAO. And then when the DAO got hacked, I helped uh, organize the recovery and redistribution of the funds that were recovered from pretty much every angle, and uh, learned a lot uh, through that whole thing. And that's what started Giveth. Go back to that early, those early days when you were getting into it. What was it like? What was the community like then? Oh, it was not nearly as cool as it is now. I definitely have to say, I, you know, there was, uh, you know, as an in as a newcomer into the space, I had never really used Reddit. I was still getting used to the different tools where people interact and Bitcoin talk forums. I actually didn't have a computer for several years uh, before cryptocurrency, uh, just because you know I was nomadic. I was traveling. It's kind of heavy to carry around. So especially back then. Yeah, exactly. I didn't need it that much. You can. Uh, go get a computer somewhere else. So, uh, you know, there was a little bit of, I mean, I've always been tech savvy and, and generally like, uh, cool with it, but 
you know, getting used to these reddits and getting used to the way people talk in subreddits and just that whole, I don't know, I'm kind of a lovey-dovey guy, you know, I'm not really into this, all the shit talking that happens. Oh, hey, can I swear? How does that work? Totally. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, okay, so then when I found Ethereum and the subreddit was so amazing, like, that, it's just the fact that they took out the money out of the conversation just raised the level of everybody's like like awareness and uh you know everyone is so nice and i made this why i i was never really a coder you know and but i made my first silly smart contract uh for a homework assignment and i wanted to make it a walkthrough because i had to make i had to explain the silly program to my uh, professor anyway so i was like i'll make this a blog post for slocket and alex vandesan actually edited it and like improved it and i was just like well, and he did it in such a nice way it was like no one trolled me and my crappy code and i just couldn't believe how sweet everyone was in ethereum and it, that sucked me in i was like this is where i'm hanging out i'm done like ethereum is home wow it sounds a bit like afri we talked to him yeah. about the early days and he had a similar I mean, I, I think uh, it's actually it, it's it's cool to hear like that the space has been like that, and and like I still see that to some degree. But um, going back to when we were talking to Afri about this topic, he said that like in 2017, when the price really boomed, that the community kind of changed tone from being this awesome, like super helpful place to like being a lot more toxic, to being a lot more about like pushing the ICOs maybe to some degree, but not necessarily just generally the tone changed. Have you found that as well? Absolutely. I mean, for me, it happened really after the Dow, you know, the Dow Slack was a really sweet place to hang out back in the day. And then after the hack, it was like, it was, it wasn't really after the hack. It was three days after the hack, just all sorts of weird accounts started coming in and just like bombarding the place with horrible trolling and really like, you know, just not con productive conversation. And, uh, I, I, you know, there is like, I, I don't know how much of a conspiracy theory it is or what, but there's this, uh, Blockstream funded organization called the Dragon's Den that actually supposedly pays trolls to come into different chat rooms and really disrupt the flow and the engagement of things. And I, honestly, the way it is, it, there's so much money in this space, we really can't put past that the idea that there might be some kind of like force at hand here. I mean, you see all these phishing accounts, you see all the, how social media can be manipulated to push certain agendas and you know, I think Ethereum's big enough where that's definitely happening. And so it's it's really hard. It's really hard to find a, a safe place to like get true signals. Can I ask, because we keep mentioning the DAO, but I think on this podcast, we've never really talked in depth about what that, what it was, what the original idea was, and what happened. Can yeah. you... Can you give us a bit of a history? Sure. Uh, Slocket originally started building the DAO with this idea that we would create a place, because this was before ICOs, right? The ICOs were happening, but not like as easily as they happen today with 10 ICOs a day, right? Uh, it was, uh, it, the idea was let's 
put a place where people can vote on different proposals to like figure out what ideas are best to fund and then have them compete against each other in this like arena. And the DAO was going to be the place where DAO token holders could choose which projects they want to support with a very simple governance model. In fact, you know, one of the things about the DAO is we called it, we let it be named the DAO. I mean, we, cause we didn't, we wanted it to truly be decentralized. And we saw that Slocket was a clear central point of organization and we didn't want to name it. So that's why it was called the DAO. We were hoping that eventually it would vote to make its name something else, right? Uh, and uh, so Slocket was building the DAO and then we were a little low on funding, honestly. And we pushed the thing forward as fast as we could because we saw that as a clear funding mechanism for what we called the universal sharing network, uh, which was my baby. I loved the universal sharing network. The idea was that we could uh, create a true sharing economy where objects could uh, be pa- be really owned by a collective, and uh, you'd be it'd be like almost a rental economy at first, but then. When we introduce like autonomous objects and, you know, really build the community around this piece of technology, we could distribute resources more effectively than we do today. That was kind of the dream. Uh, but of course, that dream did not happen for many reasons. It wasn't, uh, there was definitely the bug was the, was the killer. But honestly, I, I w- I'm pretty skeptical that the DAO would have been a success. Uh, anyway, or at least it wasn't looking very promising because there was this uh, moratorium that happened right be, uh, after we raised all the funds that uh, a lot of people were trying to stop the DAO from working because the governance wasn't really very like well thought out or it wasn't, wasn't perfect. You know, there were definitely biases towards one way or another, and uh, it was a really young project and it got too big too fast and it became a, a, a dangerous thing for the Ethereum community. So uh, when the DAO ha- uh, hack actually happened, we were three weeks in and we had proposed some security things, uh, additions that may have helped it, but it was too little too late. And there were, uh, you know, I woke up one day and the funds were being drained and I had to just kind of like call it and tell everyone, hey, guys, we're being hacked. You know, this is not a drill. Like, watch out. Like, we don't know what to do. I, we uh, had some actions. We tried to get people to spam the network to slow the bleed, you know. But I was sitting front row. I was not um, I joined Parity relatively recently, but I was sitting front row for when that was happening. And I remember it was like, this call to action to actually spam the network and people responded. I think I thought it was pretty amazing. Like that was the first time as well that I saw like there, there was actually, it's funny that you say like, it was like three days after the, the hack that, that the subreddit turned toxic. And I, yeah, like while the hack was going on and like in that first day, in the first two days and, there was like a sense of community and like everyone was actually trying to help out. I remember, I like, I vis like viscerally remember that. And it was, it was a cool experience. Yeah. I mean, we got really lucky because right after the heart, uh, the, the hack happened pretty much maybe two or three hours after I made the announcement, 
there was already a relatively strong consensus that a hard fork would be the way to go uh, to to uh, stop the attacker. I think it might have even happened before the attack had finished that we had relatively come to the idea of a hard fork would solve this. We can just like, because the magic of the DAO, uh, we did have a, a, you know, unintentional security feature that the uh, funds were locked in place for a certain amount of time. And uh, that in this case, it was 35 days. We had 35 days where we knew those funds would not move. So we had 35 days that we could actually rewrite the code in Ethereum to take the money from the hacker and put it somewhere else. And so all of a sudden, we had this time, uh, like a pertinence, like there was a time limit that we had to work in and we had a mission and we had an enemy and it just like, it all made sense to push this hard fork. And because we could start that narrative, I could help start that narrative early with podcasts and pushing and trying to rally the community around these ideas. Uh, it, it worked out really well. And really we did have a strong consensus around the hard fork and when there were a lot of, and that's when, you know, when it seemed like there was a, a pretty good consensus, that's when all the dissent came in. That's when all the people, in my opinion, from the outside, uh, Bitcoiners with an agenda came in to really, you know, seed, seed distrust in, in what the general community was rallying around. And yeah, and so then it kept, uh, you know, we just had all the devs kept working and, uh, there were lots of little, things we tried a soft fork and then that wasn't going to work for technical reasons and then uh in the end we barely got the hard fork through and while all that was happening the white hat group uh had a lot of adventures honestly there were some crazy things going on that most people don't really know about i'd, I'd love to dig into some of those adventures but uh maybe like i i thought that uh others have raised with me and something that i'm interested in and have thought some about myself is like, what if the DAO hard fork never happened? And like the, the concept of a DAO has been tainted. Like there's, there hasn't really been anyone trying to do a major DAO, um, in the past, you know, two years or whatever since, since this happened. And, um, like, have we lost this concept or like it, has this been a detriment to the community that, that this happened or what's your opinion on this? Well, there's kind of two ways I can answer that question, right? So I'm going to pause so you can pick your favorite. <laughs> there's the DAOs have definitely gotten a bad name because of the DAO. And that was one of the things that we, as the White Hat Group, really wanted to alleviate with Giveth. We started Giveth because we knew, or at least we could see the writing was on the wall, that DAOs were considered either you know not safe to try anymore and that decentralization and, and trying to have a blockchain-based entity might be seen as a bad idea and that was definitely the case like you see everyone the only smart contracts people are trusting money with is multi-sigs and man even those are not necessarily safe it's so pretty hard to write apparently it, yeah <laughs> no it, it, i mean smart contracts in general are not safe we're early days in this and there's a lot of money involved i i honestly think that there would be a lot the problem is that real security features are centralizing and there's 
you know, first off, ideal. I, there's a lot of idealism in this space. You don't want to centralize if you don't have to, right? Uh, also, you want to avoid liability when you centralize. All of a sudden, you become responsible, right? Uh, in my opinion, Ether in an experimental contract should be wrapped in a contract that has an escape hatch, right? And you move that wrapped Ether around, and at any time, if something goes wrong, you know, one person can pull the escape hatch, which sends it to some trusted multisig like the white hat multisig, and they can redistribute the funds, right? That's like the safest way. And, but in the end, that's all inspired by the DAO and the problem that happened there. And it's really sad to me. I have a question about that. I know you have a second answer there, but do you feel like, cause I think when we speak to a few people about the DAO, like, do you feel like it was traumatic? Like, or was it the biggest learning experience now? What I'm, do you- I'm more on the learning experience. Uh, I'm generally an optimistic kind of guy. You know, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I, a lot of my friends have told me that I have like the opposite of depression, right? They're like a <laughs> chemical imbalance that just like keeps it going. <laughs> I would love to have that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a different kind of thing. And so like I didn't actually experience any trauma from the Dow, which I mean, it was, I was, it definitely affected my life, but Honestly, I always have this perspective that like the hardest things and most difficult things that have ever happened to me have been the most important things that have ever happened to me, right? And I feel that way for the Ethereum ecosystem. We had a chance early days to experiment with a really contentious hard fork. And it is really important. Like the current hard fork that we're working on and thinking about, like we are able to make these decisions much more informed because of that, uh, you know, major issue that affected so many people and really put it in people's minds about smart contract security and the idea like we learned how hard forks work that most people didn't know uh, that a currency is always created you know most people just now that's obvious right you know there there's so many clear lessons about like uh, how to deal with hard forks which is something that every blockchain needs to really consider now and it was mostly learned from the DAO experience what was you had sort of you had started with two different sort of paths what was the second path the second path is what happened if the DAO had never happened like literally like what happened what would happen what would have happened in ethereum right so this actually brings me back a little bit to the things that people don't know about that the white hat was the white hat group was doing kind of in secret right because we didn't want to divulge our movements to the dao hacker and uh there were actually seven dao hackers uh and we were able to pass proposals that would move the extra balance. There was a bunch of money that wasn't in the DAO, but was raised by the DAO. Uh, in fact, if you look at Wikipedia right now, I keep meaning to go change it. They say the DAO only raised 11.5 million Ether, but really it raised about 12 million Ether. And because half a million of them were actually in this other contract called the extra balance. And we were able to move the extra balance into the DAO and then take that f- using proposals in the proposal system uh, the White Hat Group was able to send those that that ether to all of these other DAOs and gain a major fifty one percent, and then attack the DAOs within uh, you, with those funds, so that we were able to take over the DAO, com- those smaller DAOs. 
completely and then have them be controlled by the white hat group. But we couldn't do that to the big one, to the major DAO hacker. But we were able to funnel some of the money in there and we found a loophole where we could buy dark DAO tokens in the dark, in the bad DAO, in the main DAO hackers thing. So then we had like a thousand dark DAO tokens. And because of this, uh, bug that was, that was called, uh, what was it called? Oh my God. This bug was, it was like, uh, basically you could create a stalemate where you're constantly splitting the DAO and you could uh, split it forever such that you could never get funds out. So if the DAO, if the hard fork had never happened and we decided that, you know, the DAO token holders had to take a hit, the white hat group would have been able to return 70% of the funds. But the 30% that the DAO hacker had, there would be a constant battle every, uh, every week, basically, or let's see, it'd be every 35 days, there would be a battle that would continue the stalemate until either the white hat group or the DAO hacker stopped uh, fighting for those funds. And we would have just kept battling and battling and battling. And then those funds would probably still be locked up. And honestly, I was a little bit worried about that information coming out because it, to me, it was really important that the hard fork happened uh, because that this is just a mess. If that kind of stuff is happening, it's such a distraction for all the really good things that Ethereum, de- you know, developers had in mind and in store for the world. And then there's this crazy DAO war that's just ongoing for the rest of Ethereum's history. You know, it'd be so annoying. Wow. I did not know at all this part of the story. Yeah. So this white hat group i mean you mentioned some of these adventures during the dao wars that that you you were just talking about this amazing story uh and like who is in this group and like what is the white hat group how did it form and like have you what have you you, like what has this been group been doing since uh there's only at least for the dao um work for the work that we did with the dao there's only two public members which is jordi belina and i and uh but then the White Hat group is really just a loosely affiliated group of trusted hackers in the Ethereum space. And we have uh, done a lot of actions for some different token sales. And there were some other things that happened with the DAO, you know, and just little random things that happen in the space where we kind of get alerted from our network within, you know, the, uh, we, we, I'm, I'm very well connected in the space. And it seems like whenever someone has a problem, I get to hear about it like that trusted friend, you know, it's a shoulder to cry on, right? But then sometimes we can actually take action. Uh, the biggest ones uh, were, at least more recently, there was the Parity Multisig hack, the, the first actual hack where Swarm City, Eternity, and Edgeless uh, all had their multisigs emptied. And then uh, Swarm City called me, and uh, the White Hat group kind of happened to all be in, at least a lot of the core members of the White Hat group all happened to be in the same place at the same time. So it was like, Jordy, come over here. We got to look this up, you know? And then we were able to uh, drain the other, uh, I think it was about 163 other multisig wallets that had Ether in them and tokens. 
And that ended up being like $210 million that Jordy had in his personal account, right? And so he was pretty paranoid over, over all that. You know, it's like, we're just hanging out. He's a public person on the internet. And all of a sudden he has $210 million. You know, it honestly, it was like, we were probably overblowing it, you know, but in his head, this is, he had, you know, he was mar- a marked man, right? Uh, so we, uh, we were working, of course, with, uh, all the people that we could. There's like lots of security channels, uh, in Ethereum that we connect with about what to do with these funds and how to deal with all that. But, you know, it's just a funny story. We, like, when we went to bed that night, like, Jordy wanted, Jordy and his wife wanted to sleep at home. And so, like, me and another white hat went down there and I literally slept on a mattress in front of the door with a baseball bat, right? Like, cause they don't have guns in Barcelona, you know? So, like, what are you gonna do? Uh, you know, it's not America, right? We've had a, assault rifles. But, um, but yeah, so then it was, uh, you know, we had this, like week-long adventure where it's like listen we don't want to hold this money we want to give it back as soon as possible but it's like what how, where do we put it oh we'll put it in a multi-sig no i don't think so you know we want to give this back to people as soon as possible so we created this we deployed a new multi-sig for everyone while we were doing this uh other while we were like really looking over the old multi-sigs and trying to figure out a safe way to give everyone back the funds we ended up having all the old multi we deployed a new multi-sig for everyone one and then had them vote on to tell us where to send the funds using their multi-sig create a signaling contract so they could say uh in uh input a certain address and then we'd send it there and then for all the big accounts we also uh had them call us and we just like said like made sure they were them and had them read us the address like it was a big ordeal uh and, and that was that was one thing and then so that multi-sig uh, action was pretty crazy. Uh, but then there's uh, so many other random things people don't get to hear about because we get there first. There was uh, this exchange vulnerability that happened just a few weeks ago that uh, there was an internal transit. There was a way that you could make it look like you deposited funds into exchanges and determining on, de- depending on how they actually process their deposits, uh, they would give you money even though the transaction had actually failed. Etherscan would say it's a success. By all accounts, the transaction looked like it was a success. But if you look at the parity trace, it had failed in, like, in the middle of an internal transaction. And six out of the top 10 exchanges were vulnerable. Uh, and so we, you know, had to like figure out how do I alert every exchange that deals with Ethereum, you know, get all these emails. And, uh, this was actually through a white hat that wasn't involved with the DAO, uh, hack, but he came in for the parody multi-sig, uh, adventure and he discovered that vulnerability. And so like, uh, Alexi, he's another, I guess, like publicly known white hat person. And he, uh, he's a superstar, you know, and there's, there's a lot of other, uh, random adventures that we have. This, this for me harks back a little bit to something you mentioned, uh, before we started recording of like, um, with smart contract security and, and this question of like, what if the DAO never happened? You know, there's, um, you were saying like contract security was overlooked and really not something that people knew a lot about. How do you feel that that has changed uh, over the years? Uh, first off, Solidity at the time, I think the DAO was written in like 
0.3.6, right? So Solidity has gotten a lot better and there's a lot more tools. I mean, we didn't even have the payable modifier back then, right? You could just send Ether anytime you want with any function call. There's a lot of UX problems and, uh, but, you know, people learn from experience and you have a lot more, uh, you have a lot more developed audit, um, ecosystem. So like if you write a smart contract, you can find an auditor in, in 2000, when we did the DAO, there, the only auditor we had, there was no one who knew how to audit Solidity, period, zero. We, we went to the people that audited Ethereum and they, they don't know about Solidity, right? So, uh, now there's, uh, lots of options. There's a lot of, uh, clear patterns that people know to use. And it's, it's a lot more developed and a lot easier to write safe-ish contracts. But in the end, you know, you're putting money in, uh, programming language that's two years old. And I mean, we're, if there's a bug in the Solidity compiler, which I think is just now being audited for the first time, right? Like, I mean, there is so many ways that your money can disappear, right? There's, and sadly, I get to hear about it all the time because I'm that guy, you know, that gets to hear about these things. And so I'm like paranoid, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I have a question to go back to the white hat story. Um, what is, what's the mandate of the white hat hackers, white, white hat group? just do good. I mean, we don't really have a mandate. We're really not organized in any way. We just have a couple chat rooms that we hang out in. And when there's something interesting that's happening, you know, it's like we just kick it around and say, well, what's this? You know, and then when it's urgent, you know, there's like usually a call to action because basically we're just like good devs with balls. That's all. You know, we're not worried about like, oh, what's the liability? What will this? What could happen? No, it's just like, oh, shit. You know, we have the opportunity to do something, so let's do it. So somewhere the decision was taken to actually do the hard fork. What was the lead up to that like? Well, I mean, the decision was first started when Vitalik basically blurted it out when we were having like a, a discussion with all the big wigs in Ethereum that we could find, you know, about it's like the, any, the council of elders, you could say it's like, let's, let's figure out what to do. And he was just like, we should just hard fork. And then after that, it was, it became almost like, I just kind of decided, yeah, because I always felt, you know, I was always coming from the perspective of the community. I was a community organizer and that's the only way that was the only clear path for everything to be cleanly resolved. And for the people who, you know, put their funds in that contract to be made whole. So it was a clear, the clear path for me to push. So I just went on every social media. I went on a social media campaign all month, just pushing and pushing and pushing and explaining why the hard fork was the right way. And, uh, you know, which brought up a lot of questions about immutability and all these really interesting things that we learned about how blockchains actually work. And, you know, they're based off social consensus and not necessarily immutability. But uh, then when there was uh, this idea that maybe we could get around the hard fork by creating a soft fork that would 
lock the funds in place. And, you know, my memory on this is, might be a little rusty, so you might have to fact check me or double check it. But basically that was, uh, that soft fork was found to be technically infeasible because it would allow people to DOS the network by sending transactions to, uh, out, you know, allow the DAO hacker to DOS the, tr- the network or allow someone to DOS the network. There was also this idea that, uh, if the DAO hacker has 4% of all Ether in existence and we eventually move to proof of stake, that could be a huge problem, right? Like we have this clear person who does not have Ethereum's best interest in mind. So because of all these, um, you know, weird things and, and of course the fact that he's a bad person and, uh, at least one of the things that I was always pushing is like, all it takes for evil to win is for good men to do nothing. I'm butchering the, the quote, but, you guys know what I mean. So uh, I think my brain is fried after so many days of conferences. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so we, you know, we had to do a lot of testing, a lot of auditing over the smart contract that we were going to put all the funds in. There was a lot of work. Pretty much every core developer from Parity and Geth had to take a pause on whatever they were doing and start looking at this like really urgent chain, major change in the protocol. There had never been an irregular state change before and it was everyone was making it up as they went along. And uh, so it was really important and it was really, really, I feel really bad because it slowed Ethereum down by who knows how long. How many days? So did you have 35 days from the hack? Yeah. 35 days from the hack. It was basically when you split the DAO, uh, that was the function that the DAO hacker called. You have a 28 day funding period where you have your new DAO, right? You have a new DAO that can receive funds from anything to buy tokens in. And then after that, you have seven days before you could split. Or if no one else had tokens in the DAO hackers DAO, then they would be able to have after 14 days, they'd be able to have a proposal go through that would send all the money somewhere else that then it could go to exchanges or something. So 35 days before a split, that would move it to a new DAO, a new DAO, and then you'd have another 35 days before it can move again, right? Or 42 days for it to actually hit an exchange. But to keep everything clean, we really had to hit the 35 days because we didn't know what the address would be that the new DAO would be generated at. How many people do you think in total were working on that at the time? Oh, man, probably in one form or another, I'm sure over 100. Uh, you know, I mean, basically the whole Ethereum community was distracted by that the whole time. There was nothing else going on. I mean, everything else was put on pause. There was too many unknown variables. So pretty much the whole Ethereum community was working on it. But uh, concretely... On the core clients, there were probably like, you know, six or seven on each. Uh, a lot of advisors and well-known people in the community were, were uh, auditing the withdraw contract. And then, you know, obviously all of Slocket. So I would say a good 50 people were like... Officially. Yeah, officially working on that all month. Did people bond through this? Oh, yeah. I mean, the White Hat group, for sure, right? We went to war together. 
And uh, I would say a lot of people, st- you know, <laughs> the White Hat group never even met each other in person until we, you know, the ETC thing happened and we had to run off to Switzerland and like figure out a legal strategy, right? And then we all met each other in the Swiss airport, <laughs> you know? So like <laughs> there were a lot of friends made and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people went, you know, became, uh, solidified there in like there were a lot of startups that were planning to uh work with the dow like golem golem actually had a planned proposal for the dow you know and there were a lot of other groups that were planning on proposing things to the dow that probably all like got to have that experience of this major shift and like in a way like a like not like quite a rite of passage but you know like a boot camp kind of experience and i'm sure their their relationships were stronger afterwards that's why i'm sort of sad to see see that original vision of the dao go away and and not like it never really came back in a in full force of like it was like an actually good ICO model like it was you could actually raise money and there was community voting and there would like you would have the good things of of uh, like a, a normal traditional VC round where like you could actually talk about you know milestones and funding for you know specific projects and like not giving someone a hundred million on day one and just hoping that it was okay absolutely I cannot say that enough and that's why Giveth was really started because, and that was our first mandate effectively, you could say, was to create that proposal system. And this, the, I, the, what, it just is so disgusting to me the way ICOs work today. You just throw all the money in the multi-sig and hope that they're going to make, you know, do what you think they're going to do. That is so silly. That is no, no one works like that. Nothing works like that. And what we did is we created a mini me token contract so we could have better governance. We created the vault contract, which had an escape hatch, whitelist, time delay, and owner to cancel payments and all of these other centralizing security features that could then be removed as you trust the code base. And we created a milestone tracker and we created these for charity. This was the white hat group's vision was that we could practice becoming like a real blockchain based entity in the, in the area of making the world a better place. Because when in the donation space, you don't have investors, you have donors and there's a lot less of a hang up on, am I going to get an ROI and a lot less pressure to push you to make something like really profitable. It's just, they want to see some good work be done with their funds. And in that environment, we felt it was a lot easier to play around with decentralized governance mechanisms and and block becoming a blockchain based entity like becoming a real DAO. so as uh but then as we and, and we did that in a response to what was happening with the icos so although we didn't really know that at the time how so i guess it wasn't really a response because it was just a premonition in a way because we could see that smart contracts weren't trusted anymore and so we, we then started this like decentralized governance project called Giveth. And 
but it was in the charity space. And as we evolved, we gathered more people from the charity space. And also as we evolved, other projects cropped up like Aragon and Colony. And we were like, oh, these guys got it. You know, I mean, we're not trying to change the, we're just trying to fill a gap. And if Aragon and Colony are, seem to have like a good strategy here, we don't need to work on decentralized governance. They'll do it for us. And we started working more in the actual transparency and accountability space because that's what charities need. And a lot of people from the charity space started joining our team and really pushing us more towards that making the world a better place with blockchain tech to the point that Giveth became a community focused on blockchain for good. We don't have a legal entity. We're really just a group of people that are trying to use blockchain technology to make the world a better place. And we have all sorts of random projects and people that are, you know, generally the people that hang out in the Giveth Riot are the kind of guys that don't, they have a really good idea that they're really passionate about working on, but it doesn't have a clear funding model. It's really more altruistic or at least attacking a problem they feel needs to be solved. Sometimes it is like directed at the less fortunate in some ways, but a lot of times it's just like, hey, you know, I want to solve this proof of uniqueness, like this bright idea, or I want to create a wedding contract, a wedding dap, right? Because I got married on the blockchain and I want to create a dap that everyone can use so that they can get married on the blockchain, right? And there's all these other cool projects that we kind of support with uh, some random tools that we built. That's, that's, and it all evolved out of the DAO and the hard fork and this whole white hat group experience. It just kind of floated into that. How would somebody use Giveth? Like what, from what you've described, I mean, can anyone use it? Can any group use it? So Giveth, ha- Giveth it gets almost confusing like Bitcoin, right? There's the Bitcoin network, and then there's Bitcoins that you can pass around. Okay. Right? And it's the same with Giveth. We have the Giveth DAP, which is this uh, is our flagship product, which just won the super demo yesterday at EdCon, which is so cool. Uh, but uh, what we do with the, with the DAP is we try to allow anybody to create their own decentralized altruistic community, a community that's focused around a cause. So that cause could be open source block explorers. It could be ending homelessness in Toronto. It can be anything you want. And this is a place, this is kind of, instead of starting a nonprofit or an NGO or something like that, some kind of legal structure, you can start a blockchain based entity and just define your own terms around how you want that to be governed and organized. And you can collect funds and then distribute those funds in a completely transparent and accountable way so that the donor, when they send funds in, they can actually uh, see where those funds go. And at some point, if they don't like it, they can even veto and say, oh, I, I actually don't want to support that open source block explorer. I like the other one. Or I don't really trust you as my delegate anymore. I want to move it to something else. Or even like, hey, my you know brother just broke his arm and I need this money to pay for hospital bills. I'm going to take my money out completely, right? But they can only do that before it's uh, locked for a specific purpose. So this is what's really cool about the Giveth DAP is it's really trying to uh, solve the problem of transparency and accountability that we have in the charitable world today. But 
right now our DAF isn't quite done and it's still we, we had this issue where uh the gas was too high good old crypto kitties you know we were like we deployed it and then we were and the crypto kitties started cropping up and we just couldn't bring ourselves to actually say this is a final answer even though we had it all done it was so sad uh, so now we actually are doing this crazy thing and we moved our DAP to rinkaby and we're bridging the rinkaby chain to the mainnet and that, because of that experience of scaling issues, we started a whole group around scaling now and started investigating different scaling solutions. And the Parity Bridge was actually probably our favorite, which we interviewed first. But because we want to, you know, attack these tragedy of the commons issues, we actually went all the way through and interviewed a bunch of people about their different scaling solutions and had a whole little gathering in, in uh, maybe a symposium, you could say, in Barcelona, where everyone got to present their ideas and, and talk to each other in person and build relationships so they can solve their scaling issues. And that all started because we had scaling problems, you know? And uh, so we're still recover. Our DAP is almost usable. We, right now we have a successful, like, kind of what we call the ghetto bridge between Robston and Rinkaby. It's pretty centralized and has, we know we have to do these extra security precautions because of the centralization. But uh, eventually when you guys finish the Parity Bridge and when, uh, I guess you guys, uh, do you guys work for Parity? I work for Parity. Okay. So I then, used to work for Parity. Okay, so then I can say that when you guys finish the Parity Bridge... Which will hopefully be soon. Yeah, then, then we can replace our ghetto bridge with something a little more secure and trusted across those waters, right? But uh, then, uh, yeah, so, and that's when we'll probably open it up for people to actually use it. But right now, if you want to use Giveth, you use our community structure. We have these cool projects like RewardDAO that help fund uh, people that are just doing what they want to do. If you want to uh, do some kind of pro work on some kind of project and you just you know want the community to bounce ideas off of, maybe to find contributors from a group of people that are all interested in just kind of working in the space and learning solidity and you know learning how to work in in the Ethereum world. Uh, you can join our group called Social Coding. And we actually have this project where we dish points to people that are doing cool things. And then at the end of the month, uh, anyone, we kind of count up the points and $4,000 are given away to the people who receive the points. And what's really cool here is it's, you don't know how much money you're getting until l way later. So there isn't this like, cheapening of your labor by getting just like a little bit you know this is one of the problems in the charity space and that's why we created the reward DAO. is that volunteers don't want to be paid but yet they need to be rewarded because of the opportunity cost of devoting their time like how do you tell your girlfriend like yeah i would go on a hike with you but i want to do this really nice thing instead right it's like no but i'm i love you you know <laughs> like like i want to i want to go on a hike it's a lot easier to be like oh yeah yeah I, I did this other i was like deving on my computer in my mom's basement instead of hiking with you but like uh hey i just got like you know three hundred dollars you want to go out to a nice dinner right there's this at least there's a positive feedback loop and it's a kind of an experiment to uh, distance that weird thing that happens with money when you receive it and your money your monkey mind goes wild with that stuff and so like uh, we're just experimenting and playing around with decentralized governance tools and but at the same time trying to support people that are 
doing cool things in the space. Like those super demos that we, uh, that we destroyed yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, I want, I want, I'm like gave my card to like half of them saying, you guys should come into our, you know, into our space and we can help like, uh, we can help with advice because, you know, it's kind of like this group that is all really cool. Like back how the Ethereum subreddit used to be, you know, and then we're all just like working on our projects and trying to help each other out. And uh, we actually have this like, we have different strategies to get people to work together. And then, of course, yeah, you know, at the end of the month, if you make a video and tell us what you were doing, uh, you'll end up being able to cash out your points and you make like, you know, three, five hundred bucks. Like, that's cool, you know, and it's it's fun. And you get you get this feedback and you get to keep going and you feel motivated to continue working on your project. Can I say something? Yeah. What a journey you just took us on with this story. This has been epic. (laughs) And it lands in this place that's like, you know, we're recording this right after EdCon and you had just done this competition and one based on this idea that sort of all started back during a pretty... It is quite an amazing journey and uh, it's been a fantastic episode. Do you want it? Do you have any sort of last thoughts that you want to share? I mean, the only thing I would say is if any of that interested you and you're in, you want to come uh, like join our community in Giveth, it's uh, giveth.io slash join and join our riot. And we just hang out and have a good time. And, you know, uh, hopefully we can, you know, fix these tragedy, the commons issues in Ethereum and then eventually the world. Awesome. Well, it's again, it's been an absolutely fantastic episode. Uh, I love this story through and through. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast and speaking to us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.